Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. At Igniting Your Faith, we strive to motivate listeners toward a full life in Jesus Christ by sharing the love and life-changing force of God's Word. Can we love strangers? That is what God is asking us to do, to love the strangers around us. Here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Well, I'm going to tell you, I had a hard time with today's message, very hard time. It seems like I rewrote it several times, and um, I'm still tempted to rewrite it right now. (laughs) Uh, And I want to talk about some things today that are potentially painful. It could be like tearing a scab off a wound for you, for us. Uh, You know, sometimes the church goes through difficult things, and we don't like to talk about what's painful. Uh, because it hurts. And, and so we, we try to bury things. And this happens in our home life, too. Something really traumatic or terrible happens. And uh, sometimes we just want to, like, rush away from that and not really process it, bury it, hope it'll go away. But the memories haunt us. Uh, and, and I want to start with a story today of somebody whose story I've told you partially in the past, but I want to look at it from a little different uh, angle today and see what we can learn from him about how to love the stranger, how to find maybe some healing ourselves, uh, how to represent Jesus today to people who may have once known him but have stopped walking with him for one reason or another. And the, the lady whose story I'm going to tell you, that was her story. She grew up in the church, she was baptized, and she was taught the the teachings of the church as a a girl, but then something terrible happened in the church, and she left the church embittered and went away and uh, grew up, went to college and graduate school and became in many ways the opposite of the things the church stood for, and, and deeply embittered, but burying all that. And then somebody sent a message of love for her. I'm going to talk a little bit about some uncomfortable things here. I'm going to try and do it in a way that's uh, PG. Pray for me for discernment and wisdom about that. Because I don't want to step on anybody's toes or unnecessarily offend. But there's times when we have to say a truth that hurts. And I'm just feeling like I need to say those things. Not feeling like, I I hope, discerning. (laughs) So pray for me as I'm speaking today. Now, I was originally going to talk about loving your enemy, and there's a little bit about that in here, but I was inspired to stay on this subject of loving the stranger today because I think we really need to become experts at this. And we got to uh, do everything it takes to get trained into this and learn how to do it well. And rather than coming at the subject from the point of view of our Christian duty, which is sort of where I was at last week, let's think about some practical aspects of the question, particularly in light of things happening in our modern culture and the attitude of folks in the culture who are strangers to the church, who may have grown up in the church but have become strangers to the church, and how we're to love them. Uh, I've talked to you before about Rosario Butterfield, who describes in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, how she came to faith in Jesus Christ because of her friendship with a pastor and his wife, Reverend Ken and Floyd Smith, up in Syracuse, New York. She'd left the Catholic Church as a young lady when she learned that her high school best friend had had relations with a parish priest. 
PG. She felt so betrayed by this, so outraged, that she became embittered at the church and at God, and she left. Later, as a professor of English in Syracuse, in the late 1990s, one of her research focuses, her pet projects, was on the religious right, which she was very critical of because it's patriarchalism and what she saw as abusiveness. And, and maybe you could see a little bit of an echo of the things that she was outraged about from her girlhood. And she wrote critical articles about it, some of which were published in the local newspaper. Now, you can read her story. It's, uh, this is not a, a secret. Uh, it's on Amazon. You can get it, The Secret Lights, uh, Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She got various responses to those articles, some supportive, some hateful. The one that caught her attention the most, though, was from a local pastor who invited her to dialogue about those things and about things that they both cared about. He wanted to know, how did she arrive at her conclusions? What assumptions underlay her reasoning? How did she know the assumptions were true? How did she test competing truth claims? What was the basis for her convictions? Ken and Floyd Smith invited her to dialogue with them over dinner and began a friendship with her in which over the course of many months and many dinners, they reintroduced her to the truth claims of the gospel and invited her to test them for herself. As they developed this friendship, they didn't judge her or criticize her non-Christian lifestyle, though, the, though she knew they did not approve of everything about the way she lived. They loved her. And they shared the truth of Christ with her in a winsome way. And they were patient with her as they let the Lord illuminate his truth to her heart. Among other things, they helped her separate out her feelings and thoughts about God from her feelings about the church and her disappointment with its leaders. Now, I, I think maybe I should pause there and talk about something here with regard to the church. And I want to do this by quoting an article in Psychology Today from 2018 by Dr. Thomas Plant. I'm going to just take some, a few excerpts from it. Separating Facts About Clergy Abuse from Fiction. That's the title of the article. He writes, No empirical data suggests that Catholic clerics abuse minors at a level higher than clerics from other religious traditions or from other groups of men who have already access and power over children, e.g. school teachers, coaches, etc., the best available data reports that 4% of Catholic priests violated, hmm, yeah, trying to be careful here, were immoral, how's that, with minors during the last half of the 20th century, with the peak level of abuse being in the 1970s and dropping off dramatically by the early 80s. 
In the recent Pennsylvania grand jury report, only two cases were reported in the past dozen years that were already known and dealt with by authorities. And thus, the grand jury report is about historical issues and not about current problems of active clergy abuse now. Putting clergy abuse in context, research from the U.S. Department of Education found that about 5 to 7 percent of public school teachers engaged in similarly abusive behavior with their students during a similar time frame. Now, if you're uncomfortable right now, just bear with me. Okay, I know these are hard things to hear, but bear with me. While no comprehensive studies have been conducted with most other religious traditions, a small-scale study that I was involved with found that 4% of Anglican priests had behaved similarly in Western Canada. And many reports have mentioned that clerical abuse of minors is common with other religious leaders and clerics as well. The vast majority of sex offenders are regular, non-celibate men, often married or partnered, with 80% or more victimizing their own family, with the most likely candidate being a stepfather or older brother. Plant concludes, let me be clear, all child abuse is horrific. Abuse perpetrated by clerics both within and outside of the Catholic Church is especially awful since we hold these individuals to a much higher standard of behavior and trust. And in the eyes of a child and others, clerics are representatives of the divine, the most holy, and of God. The spiritual damage adds to the psychological and physical damage suffered by the victims. But to assume that clerical abuse is more frequent with Catholic clergy compared to other clerics or other men who work with youth is simply not based on sound science or quality research data to date. And isn't it true that in our culture, after that, the, the whole um, Catholic abuse scandal, that that church became the focus of all kinds of vilification and outrage? People are hurt when that kind of thing happens. But do you know, did you notice the figure? It says the 1970s. Do you remember when pornography was legalized in our country? Late 60s? 70s was a freewheeling a madhouse of immoral craziness in our culture with a fallout unknown and unpredicted. Now, I'm not saying it stopped then, but I'm saying that our culture opened the door on things that were terribly destructive and embraced them as part of the whole sexual revolution. Freedom to do what we will with our feelings and desires. And the church brought in the world and the ways of the world with all the pain and disappointment, the outrage that goes with that. When these kind of things happen, they hurt. And people need to be able to name that hurt and talk about it and process it and, and work through it like a grief of loss of, of any other kind that's horrific and, and mind-blowing and heartbreaking. And if they can't do that, they bury it, and then it turns into bitterness and outrage that's often directed at the church and even at God. That was Rosario's story. And by the time she met Ken Smith, she was probably aware of her feelings about what happened in her childhood, but that did not figure large and her trying to discern what truth was. It was only later, 
she began to walk with Jesus, and I'm getting a little ahead of her story, that she became aware that holiness, inner holiness is one of the things Jesus asked and requires of his disciples. And she had to work through that pain that she had buried. That was unholy. And Jesus had a solution for it, to wash her clean, to bring healing to her, to help her get past that huge failure that had overshadowed and twisted and redirected the course of her life. She began to study at the invitation of Pastor Smith the scriptures for herself to let them speak to her and to attend church, all the while living in her pagan lifestyle. And she found herself genuinely drawn to Jesus for himself and to become convinced that he is who he says he is, that he is Lord. And sensing that this called for a decision on her part, she surrendered to him. And I want to read what she writes about her surrender in her own words. That night I prayed and I asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like a sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all. My sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. After that, she began to change. To grow tired of her old way of life and its priorities and identities defined by the world. And in rebellion against God, those just began to fall her, off her like fruit off a dead tree. She wanted to know Jesus and be defined by him. And to follow him, she saw that he was the real deal, the source of life, true life. She began a process, and so began a process of transformation in her as she got on the way of holiness with the Lord. Today, she's a devout Christian in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, married to Pastor Kent Butterfield, a mother, teacher, writer, and speaker. Now, I want you to notice this, that as a child, she was baptized and taught the things of the faith. And she left that faith and became something else, a stranger to God and to the church. Ken and Floyd Smith loved her as that stranger. And even as what many would have considered an enemy of the church, writing to attack many things that were, in her eyes, wrong about the church. Not just the, the abuse, but the whole, the whole system. The Smiths were intentional to meet her in a way that was led by the Holy Spirit. At the Spirit's prompting, they held back easy Bible answers and scripture quotes. Too easy to give sometimes. And instead, challenging her to find those things for herself. They were patient. They built a friendship with her over many meals, all the time representing Jesus. They had the patience to ask her questions and let her figure out the answers. Questions that were 
maybe put her off her, her balance, that were uncomfortable, that made her think, that made her research and, and look at her heart and, and okay, if Jesus has, is claiming something and I say that I love the truth, I better find out whether his claim is legit. Is he who he says he is? If he is the truth, really, I need to find out whether that's true. And if it is, then what does that mean for me? You see where it led her. You know, Jesus' missional method includes those who are the lost sheep of Israel. She was in many ways like a lost sheep of Israel, baptized in the church but having gone away because of the things of life that had happened to her, some of which were disappointments in the church. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that in our own church, we've had people who are heartbroken because of things that have happened in our church or connected to our church. And that those hurt deeply and profoundly and directed people's lives onto paths that were not of God, that were full of pain and embitteredness, and that caused them to go in directions that ended up being away from God. They became like lost sheep and have become like lost sheep. And what are we going to do as a body of Christ with that information? And I want you to notice this wasn't designed to be an attack on the Catholic Church. It was men who picked up the sin of pornography and lust in the 70s and ran with it. Men in general in our culture. And who were the victims? It was the women and the children. Now I know it's not quite that simple, that there are uh, parties in, in, in both sides. But, but do you see what has happened in our culture is that we've got a, a bunch of folks who are angry at God, angry at the church. They have embraced the sexual revolution as if it was a type of freedom, but it's self-destroying. And they're angry at the church because it embraced the way of the world for a little while. You know, Jesus has a lot of harsh words to say about people who are guilty for that kind of thing. It'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than to make one of these little ones stumble. Do you remember what happened to Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who used to sleep with the women at the entrance to the tent of meeting? They were deeply immoral guys. Do you remember what happened to them? That's right, they were destroyed. God set a day of judgment for them. And he announced to Eli and his family, you didn't correct your sons, I'm going to correct them, I'm going to take care of this. And it will echo in Israel, it will make people's ears tingle when they see what I do. God has wrath for sin when it comes in and hurts his children. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the wrath of God, but when people won't repent, including leaders in the church. Don't you think for a minute Jesus won't take care of that. He will. Remember the prophetess Jezebel in the book of Revelation who taught God's people to commit sexual immorality. And Jesus said, I've given her time to repent, but if she won't repent, I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering. I'm going to slay her children with death because of what they're doing. Because Jesus knows how that brings death into people's lives. Now, her children is representative of the people who follow her teaching. The Lord is able and does correct and will correct those, especially in leadership who are called to a higher account when they fail in this way. But what is our duty in these areas? It is to work through the pain and forgive. And sometimes that means naming it. 
And I look back about things that happened here many years ago, maybe not that many years ago, and I think one of my failings as a pastor is I didn't get us together enough to talk through how it felt, what happened. We need to do that. We need to do that to be able to work through that pain. And some of us still need to do that. Some of us are still carrying around that wound. Some people left the church because that wound, when they came here, it reminded them of their own wounds from their childhood, wounds like Rosario Butterfield's. And they just couldn't be here because it reminded them of those. Now, Jesus is here, and he has healing for people, including for the perpetrators, to bring people to repentance. You know, as Jesus said about Jezebel, I've given her time to repent. It wasn't just, what, you did that, boom, you're done. He wanted her to come out of that destructive lifestyle invited her to come out. And when there's repentance about this kind of thing, we need to be willing and quick to forgive. Second Corinthians talks about the guy who had been cut off from the church and kicked out because of his discipline. And G Jesus saying through Paul to the church, now forgive the one who's been cut off so that you don't fall prey to the snare of, sna of Satan and become bound up yourself. Because one of the things that happens to us when we refuse to forgive the people that have hurt us, disappointed us, wounded us, or who we are outraged against, is when we fail to forgive them and bitterness takes root in our heart, we become like them. We do. Judge not lest you be judged with the same measure because the measure you give is the one you'll get. Brothers and sisters, we must work through the remnants of injustice and hurt and offense and bitterness that haunt us wherever they are. And if we need to name them and confront and have a painful conversation to start dealing with it, it, it with Rosario's situation, she needed to come back to Jesus before she could even start to look at that stuff in her heart. Because, folks, it's terrifying to look at that stuff in your heart. And without the presence of a beloved God next to you, the friend who sticks closer than the brother, who's utterly pure and perfect, who understands our woundedness and bitterness, who comes not to judge us. I didn't come into the world to judge it, but to save us. Who knew, knows he's gone to the cross to pay for all that. And we can therefore pour out everything to him and let it go. And find healing. Pick up healing from him and relief and peace. I know a guy who was so scared of women because of a wound he'd had in his childhood that he couldn't even be around them without trembling. And then he saw Jesus taking that burden off of himself and he could be with them after that and embrace them and love them as sisters with a pure heart and not see them as a threat. You see, we got to work through this stuff that keeps us from being loving, including loving the stranger. If we haven't worked through our pain and the kind of pain that drives people away from the church, then how will we represent Jesus to those people? You know, Ken and Floyd Smith were not threatened by Rosario's pagan lifestyle. They were empathetic to her. They, they had hearts of compassion to listen to her story, to see in the betrayal of her childhood the echoes and how it had worked out in her life and to keep calling her back to who Jesus really is and to find in him the answer 
to her life's wounds and questions. You know, when Jesus sent out his followers, he sent them out. Remember some of those missions he describes. He descri- the, the scripture describes him sending the twelve. And they go out and they've been given authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal. And they go and do that. And they, it's successful. They come back and, and it's awesome. And then a little bit later in the next chapter, Luke 10, he sends out 72. And he says, go to every village I'm about to go to and prepare the way. Tell them the kingdom of God is near. And heal the sick. And then he would go to those villages. And he said, if they welcome you, then go and stay in a single home and, and work from there. And then move on to the next place. If they don't welcome you, then shake the dust from your feet as a witness against that town. But surely the kingdom of God has come near them. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them on the day of judgment because they've rejected you. Now, then he says this key vital phrase, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. You know, Jesus prepared them for the possibility of rejection. Don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's about him. And we need to get that very clear today on this if we're going to be effective witnesses of Jesus. If the Smiths had looked at what Rosario was doing in her letters that she sent to the newspaper criticizing the religious right, and they had taken offense and they'd said, oh my gosh, this woman, oh Lord Jesus, why don't you just destroy her? Imagine the fruit of the kingdom that never would have blossomed and grown and borne fruit. They did not take it personally. It was not about them. It was about Jesus. And their work was to help her see Jesus for who he really is. To get past the blinders that pain and sin will put on people about who God really is. If you're rejected for the sake of Christ, it's not really you that's being rejected. It's Christ. If you're rejected for being a witness for Christ, it's because of Christ that you stand out and are different from the world. If you were just like the world, it would have no reason to reject you. You you wouldn't even be noticed. You're just like us. And notice this move, the mission. When Jesus is raised from the dead and He ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit is poured out. And before he goes up to heaven, he says, now you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You notice that the church begins in Judea among the Jewish people. But after a good beginning, the Holy Spirit sends the disciples to Samaria and then to the Gentiles. And the book of Acts devotes a lot of attention to these moves with the latter half of Paul's ministry, especially among the Gentiles going out the beginning to the ends of the earth. There it is, to the, beginning with the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then to those nearby, and then to the strangers who don't know God at all. Now there's a point in remembering these things. We are in the same line of mission as those original disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're his ambassador. And we as a church represent him. Now we've done what we thought we could. We did actually the best we could in the past with pain, but there may have been more we could do. And if somebody still needs to talk about, there is more that we can do. I know that some of our groups, our small groups in the study on healing, the book on healing by Francis McNutt, who's a Roman Catholic clergy, 
Love the Lord deeply died last year. And he, his, some of his chapters were on stuff that's related to this. Finding healing from childhood trauma. Being able to talk about what happened. Being able to name the things that are the shadows keeping us pressed down inside. And by naming it, being able to then, with Jesus' help, to let it go. And say, that doesn't define me anymore. I forgive. Yeah, all these messy feelings are here, and I'm telling you about them, Jesus, but now I'm giving them to you. I'm going to surrender my judgment, those people to you. You are able to judge. I'm not really. I, I can't do that. I'll let you. For my part, I forgive. And I want you to tell me who I am. I don't want my bitterness to tell me who I am. I don't want my wounds and my outrage, the injustices of my past to tell, my who, tell me who I am. I don't want the desires and things of the world to tell me who I am. Just you, Jesus. I give myself to you. Make me who you want me to be. You, you tell that to the Lord in earnest, and he'll do that. He'll do that. It'll be a walk, the walk of knowing him. And you can then represent Jesus to others because you've known the way of suffering yourself, the way of the cross. And you can offer him to people who are hurting to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to total strangers who think the church is their enemy. But it's not. It's their best friend, and it could become their mother. With Jesus, the Father God, bringing to birth into the kingdom like Rosario Butterfield. See, the mission hasn't changed. You, we are still appointed to be his witnesses and to help prepare the way for him in other people's lives. Now, I want you to as I close here, try to put yourself in the shoes of a typical 21st century non-churchgoer to start preparing your heart on how to do this practically. They may have some church background like Mrs. Butterfield, but have turned away from God for one reason or another, and those reasons may be multitude, but you'll never know them if you don't get down and start to build a relationship with them and let them talk and let them pour out their heart and tell you their story, and have the patience and kindness to listen, and to take it in without judging them, because you still got good news, and, and, and at the right time, you'll be able to ask the questions that can echo for eternity in their hearts, and make them go away and say, oh, maybe I need to see things from a new way, a new perspective. They may have a vague idea of God, even a basic faith to try talking to him, like the Samaritan woman at the well, without a real relationship of trust in Jesus. They may have no idea of the reality of God at all. They may have a vague hunger for spiritual things, perhaps dabbling in the supernatural, in witchcraft or in Eastern religions for spiritual help. They may be complete materialists, meaning that they believe this material world is all there is. That's a worldview philosophy that's very common in Western culture these days. But yet a lot of them have a sense of dissatisfaction with that because the Holy Spirit is stirring in them. And they're wondering, where did it all come from? How did the Big Bang start? Why do I care about love? All those questions have a spiritual dimension. And what do they think about the church? They may not like the church. They may, have, they may not like religion. They may feel the church has failed them at some point. They may have mixed up their disappointments and bitterness toward the church or its leaders with their feelings towards God. Even feeling that God himself has failed them. And how are we supposed to respond to these strangers? These lost sheep of the church. 
We're to represent Christ to them. They have to get to know us for us to be able to help them overcome those barriers. And that means building authentic friendships with them outside the church. A lot of people are not even coming into church sanctuaries anymore. They're thinking those are enemy places. They're just going to go and be uncomfortable and they're going to be judged there and they're not going to be welcome and so they don't come. And yet God did not say to the disciples, go build a synagogue and sit there and wait till they come. Right? He said, you go out there in the highways and byways and preach and prepare the way for me. I'm going to show up. And there will be people who welcome you. Yeah, there will be some who don't. And you can get rid of the dust from that town, but there will be plenty who do welcome you. And when they welcome you, they welcome me. See, we're to show these people we care about them and they get to see us as the genuine disciples we are. We're called to love them. We shouldn't be afraid to do this. Jesus called many sinners to follow him and broke the mold of religious expectations. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, he said, but the sick. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if you know yourself, you know that you're one of them. That you're not in the church because you had some kind of grand righteous card and you deserve to get in here. That you're part of the church by the grace of God. God gave you the gift of faith to trust Jesus. And your sins are washed away and you're forgiven, not because of something you did or earned, but because of that terrible price that he paid out of his awful and wonderful and amazing and terrific love for us. Amen. Hallelujah. There's a good hallelujah there. We should have the same joy to be in the presence of spiritual strangers and gradually share Christ with them. That requires four things, I think. I'm going to just highlight probably many more. But you know how it is with clergy pastors. We want to have four points. I hope you've got more than that this morning. Integrity, humility, gentleness, and patience. Integrity. We must live pure lives that look like Jesus to have a credible witness. There can't be room for compromise or a little playing or dabbling with the world. A little playing or dabbling with the world soon becomes looking like the world. A lot of men picked up pornographic magazines in, in past decades and even today. You can get it on, online in a second, in a flash. Just a little dabbling. Just a tiny taste. And pretty soon it had captivated their whole minds and lives and they couldn't see another person without seeing them as an object of their lust with all the evil and hate that comes out of that. There is no room in the church. That's why Paul says, let there not even be a hint of immorality among you. Not even a hint. But we should all have pure lives, righteous and holy. I'm a little paraphrasing now the second part of this. So that we look like Jesus. Our integrity prepares the way. And you have to get to know somebody before they see your integrity. They don't assume it about us anymore. They don't assume it about clergy. They don't assume it about any political leader. Because remember, it's not just the church that's guilty of this stuff. It's political leaders at the highest level. It's leaders in civic organizations. It's leaders in schools. It's leaders in the Boy Scouts. It's leaders in the Girl Scouts. It's everywhere in our culture. And as we live differently in front of people and we treat them differently, they start to see our integrity and we start to win the right to be heard. Humility. You know, it's not about what you know that saves you. It's about who you know 
And that's not by works. It's by grace. And to be humble enough to say, you know, I, I don't deserve this. And apart from Jesus, I would be a mess. I would be just like such and so that you hate. Just like all the things you despise. But Jesus has made me different. To be humble, to be, and part of humility is to let other people have the floor and talk, right? Not to feel like you have to have everything that there is to be said in this conversation, this spiritual conversation. To, to just be patient and listen, listen. Gentleness. Love is expressed through gentleness. To be able to sit down with somebody over tea in your kitchen a neighbor maybe you haven't talked to in a while and say, you know, I really like to get to know me. No, you tell me your story. Here, have another lump or two. And patience. Patience, not just with them, but with God, to let God do things at his speed. You know, the Smiths, when they were talking to Rosario, they could have tried to give her all the answers. Okay, you think this, but this is what you should think. But that's not what they did. They asked the spiritual questions that didn't have easy answers and didn't try to answer them. They let God work in that cloud of ambiguity and uncertainty. And sometimes those are the kind of questions Jesus, is, Jesus asks. The kind of questions that rock you off your feet. To the rich young ruler, well, if you really want to have life, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. Well, boy, didn't that rock him? He went away sad, but boy, don't you know that he was, the spirit was stirring in him because of that. And in the course of history, there have been plenty of rich people who went and sold everything they had and gave it to Jesus because they figured out he had life and that pile of money didn't. And all along, willing to listen respectfully, led by the spirit. When the spirit says, no, don't talk, not to say, okay, Lord Jesus, but I think I need to say this. And could you just take the back seat for a minute? But instead to say, okay, Lord, I'll be quiet. And because there, Rosario reports how Ken Smith, there were times when he, he told her later, the Holy Spirit would not let me answer that question for you. He, he just said, be quiet. You have to let her work through this and come to terms with me, not through you. And so he held back what he could have said. And finally with this, you know, this is this the beginning of the Luke, 10 passage. This is my last thought for the day. Well, second last. He told him the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, he was talking to the 72 who are just about to go out into the harvest field. Ask the Lord of the harvest. He told them to pray. That's what he was instructing them to do. Pray. Pray for the preparation of your heart. Pray for the lost sheep of the church. Pray for the strangers and enemies of the church. Pray for the people that God wants to send you to. Pray for the, the co-worker or neighbor that you sort of sense, well, maybe Jesus loves them. Not maybe, but maybe I'm supposed to do something to express that. Pray for them. Pray the Lord of the harvest will make the harvest ripe. Pray for discernment to go where that harvest is. And then follow his instructions. Now, I want to say one more thing here to close. This is the last thing. I, I know that um, every church has painful things that happen in it. And there are things that, some things are deeper than others. 
And sometimes we just let little petty resentments divide and alienate us. And that, that's just the worst. That's totally Satan's trap. Uh, if you've got something that you need to say, including to me, because you're mad at me, and if you're watching online and you just happen to tune in today, but you, you don't really like to listen to Pastor Fisher, <laughs> and this is what's going on, then please come and talk to me. Don't hide it. Don't let bitterness be the lingering thing that divides us. If, that, if there's something between you and another sibling in the church, a brother or sister in Christ, don't let it, let it go. And if you can't let it go, go and talk to them to the place where you can let it go. It's by our love for each other, our unity, that the world is supposed to know that we belong to Jesus. And we have to work at that. Just like in your home, in your, your marriage. If some little petty grievance happens between the two of you, those of you who are married, and you don't deal with it, and you just sort of shove it under the rug, then what happens is there's a little bit uh, uh, like a brick in the wall. Do you remember Pink Floyd's song? You put another brick in the wall. And maybe the wall was small at start, when it started, but you keep doing that, the wall starts to grow. And eventually there's total alienation. That is not God's will for us. Husbands, loves your, love your wives. Do it self-sacrificially. Tear down the bricks, throw them in the garbage. Wives, love, respect your husbands. Do it self-sacrificially. Get rid of that stuff. Work it through. Talk it through gently, patiently. Forgive each other. In the church as well, the family of God. And if there's stuff that's deeper, that like literally you need to go see a counselor to talk about, you need pastoral counseling, you need spiritual counseling, you need inner healing because the wound is so deep, then go seek it. Think about the people that followed Jesus and from a distance shouted out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I'm sick of being sick. And if your heart's sick, then do that. Don't let it linger in there and keep coloring and, and twisting and bitterizing. I know that's not a real word, but, you know, <laughs> your life. Call out and work through what it takes to get past the pain. So it doesn't define you anymore because Jesus has freedom for you. The freedom of divine everlasting healing, deliverance, purity, cleansing, set you loose from being the victim, set you loose from being the victimizer. He's the master at it. And he's borne the sins of the world, including yours. Including the ones that were done to you. Including the ones you did to others. So we can come to him, you can come to him and do it. And if there's something that you need to talk about in the presence of your brothers and sisters in the church, and I'm going to just do this. Uh, I want to invite you to Wednesday prayer meeting. Can I get an amen from... Now, there's just a handful of us there, usually. We'd love to see more. But if you need to come and talk through some bitter pain, including something that happened in the church that still haunts you, or maybe something in your childhood from another church that haunts you, or you've got a friend who this is what's going on with them, and you want to intercede for them, come to the Wednesday night prayer meeting at 6, and we'll give you the opportunity to talk. And we'll pray for you and with you. We'll pray for each other. The Lord inhabits the praises and prayers of his people, and he'll bring healing. And if there's something that we need to do in a larger sense as the body of Christ that I am just not clear on, I'm open to that. But by the grace of God, we want to move on, right? So we represent Christ well, and we can welcome the lost sheep of Israel, the, law, the, the strangers, and even the enemies who 
they're, they're not really enemies. They just need to get it right, what's going on with who Jesus is. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, I wasn't really sure about any of this today. It made me so uncomfortable preparing this. You know that. But I know that you're the God of truth and grace. And that when you bring truth to light, it's in the context of love. And your ultimate goal is love and holiness. That we might become like you. And that through us you might bring many sons and daughters to faith. That we are the ones who prepare the way. Whether by our prayers, our witness, the things we ask, the love we express, the acts of hospitality and gentleness, the listening ear that we give others, the challenge of the spiritual question asked at the right time, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, those gifts of the Holy Spirit you give when they're needed, the word of prophecy, healing, all that good stuff. Lord, we ask you to work in us in a new way, to bring healing, to make us agents of healing, to make our small groups places where people can lay their burdens down and find relief, and pick you up and find relief. We thank you for your love that's in our midst and your Holy Spirit, for your healing grace that you have overcome the world, and we're to take heart. Though we have trouble in this world, you've overcome it. And in you, we can be and are overcomers. Lead us, Lord. We trust you for that. Amen. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God... Ignite your faith.